Amen. Open up in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 24 to 30. You find your way there. There's a business book that came out a number of years ago that was a bestseller, highly popular and read by many. The book was called Good to Great. And one of the most memorable lines of that book was the very first sentence, which went like this. Good is the enemy of great. Has a lot of implications when you think about it. Good is the enemy of great. And the whole point of that statement and the point of that book was to say that when businesses get stuck being good enough, they rarely grow to greatness. When they stuck, they're stuck in the realm of just making it and surviving and they're doing good, then rarely ever do they become great. They never strive beyond what's good enough because why? Good enough is good enough. So their goodness prevents them from seeking greatness. Their goodness in what they have stops them from realizing there's something better to pursue. Well, what we've been seeing in our text the last couple weeks was something similar, maybe a spiritual parallel that I'm going to present to you. Um, similar to good is the enemy of great is this statement. Religion is the enemy of the gospel. False religion, man-made religion, is the enemy of the gospel. That is, religion, man's attempt to get to God, man's attempt to please Him, man's attempt to become clean, man's attempt to undefile himself, is the enemy of coming to understand the gospel. And insofar as you are religious, and that you are manufacturing ways to approach God, you will be cut off from the grace of God. You will never understand the depth of your need for God. Your religion will actually prevent you from knowing God in any real sense. Religion is the enemy of the gospel, which is why there are churches filled with highly religious people who don't actually know God, who are very busy with all kinds of religious activity, that are in church every Sunday, that are giving their tithes and their offerings, that are participating in small groups and studies, but they have a religion. A religion that has built a wall around them, a hedge around them that has convinced them of their own goodness, that has separated them, so they think, from the sins of the world. And because they have begun to think that they are therefore good enough, they no longer need grace. The gospel becomes irrelevant. That is what we've been seeing in Mark chapter 7. Look there in your text. In chapter 7, we've seen it with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, how, at least how they thought, good enough. They did all kinds of religious activities to present themselves to God. They wanted to be undefiled before God. And so what did they do? You see this in chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. These Pharisees were meticulous in their keeping of the rules and the traditions of men. They washed their hands. They washed their cups. They washed their couches, it says. They did everything to keep 
the defiling things that were on the outside from encroaching upon their pure lives. They kept them out. They remained very religious, and their religion, so they thought, kept the defilement at bay. They thought that the problem was on the outside, that the problem was out here. And if I can remain clean, if I can follow the traditions, if I can be religious enough, then I will be pure before God and He will be impressed with me. And Jesus watches what they're doing and He listens to their accusations. And He says in verse 6 that you are hypocrites. That you do a good job of keeping the outside clean, but the inside is filthy. In verse 7, He says, quoting Isaiah, that you worship God in vain. It is empty worship. It is a sham. It is a tragedy because you think that God is pleased with what you're doing. You think that God is worshipped by your efforts. But all your efforts, all that you're putting into this, all your diligent hard work to please God is empty. It's meaningless. It's worthless. Jesus lambasts their false tradition because it actually displaces God from the center and it elevates man, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, verse 7 says. Jesus understands that their religion is a false one. And the reason he speaks so harshly about it is because they will never come to the gospel of grace so long as their religion is holding sway in their lives. And so you get to chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, and this is what we looked at last time. Jesus needs to correct them. What's the real issue? What's the big problem? The problem is not that they've, they need to fix everything on the outside and make sure that they're clean, their hands are clean, and their house is clean, and everything's clean. That's not the issue. Jesus corrects them by diagnosing the true problem. The true problem is not anything you can wash your hands and get rid of. It's not anything that you can just separate yourself from other people and become clean. That's not going to work. Jesus says the problem is deep down inside you. The problem is your heart. If you misdiagnose the problem, you're going to misdiagnose the cure. And so that's what the Pharisees had done. They thought that the problem was out there, and so they thought the cure was out there. So they worked for outside-in change. It would never work. They only succeeded in becoming more snake-like hypocrites. So Jesus needs to correct them, and what he does, look at chapter 7, verse 21. He says, here's the real issue. For from within, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You can be as religious as you want and you can wash your hands every day and you can go to church every Sunday and get involved in the small groups and you can do everything possible to fix the problem and Jesus says you will not touch the problem because the problem is in the heart. The source is here. If you try to dress up the corpse on the outside, it's still dead on the inside. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. There's no good done by just fixing the external problems, the outside problems. Jesus says, no, it's out of your heart. You are the problem. <laughs> Jesus, perfect love and perfect wisdom, incarnate God, says, you're the problem. 
You're the problem. Your heart's the problem. All the things that you see in the world are because of the sinfulness of the human heart. Wars will never cease. Nothing will ever be fixed until the hearts of men are changed. And if you do not change the hearts of men, nothing will work. Nothing will change us. It is from the hearts. Flows out of our mouths, through our lips, into our actions, into our families. The dysfunction spills forward from the evil toxic that comes out of our hearts. It's filling our homes. It goes into governments. It goes into universities. It flows into those classrooms. It flows even into the very church that we're attending this morning. The evil of the world flows into the world from the heart. It's flown out of here. And therefore, to point fingers as if if we fix that or this or that issue and that law, then it will never actually address the real problem. We will misdiagnose it again. That's the context that we find ourselves in as we come to this next question. And we ended last week by asking this question, well, what in the world do we do? I mean, if I'm the problem, if my mind's the problem, my heart's the problem, the way I think, the way I feel, the things I want, the desires I have, the cravings that are there within my heart, if those things are the issue, then, then I can't reason my way back to God. I can't intuit my way to be, make myself clean. I, I can't figure this out. It's not something I just got to think hard enough and figure it out and work hard enough and cleanse myself from it. I can't do that. I, I can't fix my own heart. So what do we do? And we ended last week by saying that this is something that God and God alone can do. God and God alone can change your heart. God and God alone is the one who gives new hearts to those who come to him in repentant faith. God and God alone can do it. And you might work hard all your lives and succeed in only building an empire of dirt that will crumble on the last day. You need a new heart. We need new hearts to stand before God. We need God to cleanse our hearts. And so then the next question is this. Well, how do I approach God to get the cleansing I need? How, how do I approach God? I, I want to change. I want to grow. I want to have the filth dealt with. I want something to come in and change me from the inside out. How, how do I approach God? Do I need to learn some kind of technique in approaching God? Some kind of prayers to pray? Can, are, are there things I can recite? Are there certain secret practices I'm not aware of? And if I do these things, I can be cleansed on the inside. How do I get the cleansing I need? How do I get the help I need? And the way you answer that question will determine a lot of your Christian life. And there are many wrong answers to that question and how we approach God to get the help we need. How do you approach God to get the cleansing you need? And it's actually brilliantly put together in our scripture that right after Jesus explains the, the, the failure of the Pharisees to address the issues, as Jesus explains the reality of the sinfulness of the human heart, he then, the narrator here, Mark, goes into a picture. He, he paints for us a picture of a woman who gets the help she needs, who is a picture of how to approach Christ, to get the cleansing she desires. 
The Pharisees are a picture of how not to try to get the cleansing you need. The focus on the outside and to adopt more religious things. Uh, that's how not to do it. And here we meet a woman who couldn't be more different than these Pharisees. And yet, Jesus responds to her with grace and mercy and healing and power. Let's read the text. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's get a little bit of the setting of what's going on here. You see there in verse 24 that Jesus arose then. He went away to this region called Tyre and Sidon. He's going up out of Israel. This is one of the few accounts where he's actually leaving the land of Israel and he's going into a Gentile area. The region of Tyre and Sidon would have been northwest. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities. And the region up there was inhabited by pagans. These were people who were not Jews. They were not familiar uh, with the customs of the Jews, the traditions of the Jews. And this area, actually Tyre specifically, is noted in the Old Testament for being a source of all kinds of idolatry. You want to know who is from Tyre in the Old Testament? You'll recognize this name. Jezebel was from Tyre. Jezebel, who is responsible in part for bringing the Baal worship into the nation of Israel and causing the nation of Israel to fall into idolatrous practices, well, Tyre is the place where this is all kind of festering and this pagan idolatry comes out of Tyre inside in this region, a very unclean region. In the Old Testament prophets, if you read Isaiah and you read Ezekiel, you'll find from time to time prophecies of judgment being aimed at Tyre. This is a wicked city. It's a city that is deserving the judgment of God, an unclean city that no Jew would venture into. It was a, a place that the Jews of that day would have run far away from because it would have made them unclean. And here it says that Jesus, after having this discussion with the Pharisees who thought they were the epitome of cleanliness now jesus leaves them and goes to this unclean region of tyre and sidon where there are pagans and gentiles non-jews there entering kind of the bastion of pagan idol worship and it says there that he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden 
what you know by that is that Jesus is not going here for ministry. If Jesus were going here to do ministry, he wouldn't try to be hidden. That's not a really good strategy for missionary activity, that you go to a new place and try to hide in your room. But Jesus is going to this new land, but it says that he entered a house and he did not any, want anyone to know that he was there. Matthew makes it more clear that the apostles are with him. He's, they've gone here together. And I would imagine that this is similar to the previous sections we looked at where Jesus is actually trying to get rest. He's getting away from the crowds who have been dogging him everywhere he goes. He actually ends up leaving Jerusalem, leaving Israel to go up. Uh, north to get away he gets into a house he doesn't want to be seen he's going to rest with his disciples and of course he gets interrupted in verse 25 immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit uh, unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet this woman we see in verse 26 she's a gentile that means, uh, the, the word actually sounds like the word for Hellenized. She's, she's Greek-speaking. We know that she's from Syrophoenicia, which is from those coastal cities. She is a pagan. She's uh, probably brought up in the idolatry of the towns that she was raised in. And yet we know from the Matthew account that she had heard something about Jesus. And she was able, even in the Matthew account, it's not mentioned here in the Mark account, that she calls Jesus the son of David. So she knows something of the history of the promise of the coming Messiah for the Jews. She's there. She's begging. She comes in. It says immediately this, this woman finds Jesus and she has an unclean spirit that's been oppressing, possessing her own daughter. It's a terrifying situation. And we see just from these first verses, the contrast. Can you see the contrast? Uh, if you're looking at the previous section, can you see the contrast? The Pharisees, they're clean. They're educated. They're part of the religious elite. They're respected. They're honorable. People would have looked up to them. And then you got this woman from a pagan land, unclean dominated in her family her poor little girl dominated by an unclean spirit a demon i mean this is they're, they're complete opposites and what you've seen here as we read the text god dealt graciously and with mercy to this poor woman and the pharisees he rejected don't be caught up in the appearances don't get caught up with how the world evaluates things Many of us, if we were on that school ground picking our teams, we would have picked the Pharisees, wouldn't we? I want them on my team. Look at them. They got life together. They got it figured out. They got power. There's authority that they carry. There's a weightiness. There's a respectability that they have. This woman, she's got none of that. She's unclean. She comes all alone to Jesus with this request and yet God is going to look at the heart. God is going to see right through the, the Pharisees and right through the need here of this woman. And what we're going to see here, I want to draw out some principles of how she approaches Jesus. Because we can either approach Jesus like a Pharisee or we can approach him like this woman. And as we study what this woman is doing, 
I want you to have that question in the back of your mind. How do I approach God? How do I approach the Lord Jesus Christ? When I pray, as I think about who He is and live this Christian life, do I tend to approach God like a Pharisee or like this woman? We're going to th- see three ways that she approach, approaches Jesus. And then we're going to draw from these three things how we too ought to approach the Lord. Here's the first principle we're going to unpack. We should approach Jesus in our helplessness. Here's the situation. It says that this little daughter, little daughter, probably somewhere between 5 and 12 years old, a child, hasn't lived much, hasn't grown up, just a little child. It says that she had an unclean spirit. That is a demon that has been possessing her, oppressing her. This poor woman is running out of options, experiencing a kind of tragedy that would be hard for any of us to imagine. I want you to put yourself in her shoes for a moment. This little girl that she carried in her womb, this little girl that she gave birth to, this little girl born that she nursed, that she nurtured, that she raised in her household. We don't know all the story of what happened, but suddenly at some point in this little girl's life, some things are not normal. Bizarre events start happening. This little girl is terrified. She doesn't quite know what's happening. The mother doesn't quite know what's happening. And suddenly it's becoming more clear. There's, there's spiritual forces at play. There's something happening that's beyond even her ability to control, the mother's ability to control. She's realizing that this is a problem outside of my scope. Can you imagine this? Coming to realize that I can't do anything about this. I can't handle this situation. This is beyond me. This is a power greater than me. This is a problem that I don't have the wisdom to handle. She's utterly helpless. Matthew describes it like this, that she was, the little girl was severely oppressed by a demon. It's hard to understand all that that would imply. A couple chapters later in Mark chapter 9, we get a little boy who's oppressed by a demon. And the the father of the boy describes the situation where the boy would go rigid, foam at the mouth, toss and turn. And sometimes even the demon that was taken over his little boy's body would try to throw him in the fire. I don't know what's happening with this girl, but perhaps similar things. That this is a problem great The little girl's life is at stake. And the mother is utterly exhausted of any ability to do anything about it. She is at the end of herself. And so what is she doing? She is coming to Jesus in her helplessness. Friends, you will find as you live life in a fallen world that you will regularly find yourself in situations that are utterly outside of your ability to control outside of your ability to manage. You will be utterly helpless before outside powers, outside events, tragedies, and situations that will come into your life, and you will not be able to handle it. That is life in a world after the fall in Genesis 3. 
that we are helpless, that we find ourselves without strength, without ability, without wisdom to deal with the problems that are thrown at us. And so we need to ask ourselves, well, what do we do in those moments? Is God the type of God who helps those who help themselves? Do we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps? Do we need to recite some sort of special incantation? Do we need to figure out uh, some technique to dealing with the problems of our lives? I think what we see here is the woman is coming to Jesus in her helplessness. He is letting her helplessness, letting the weight of the problem draw her to her knees and cry out to Jesus. Psalm 72, verse 12. For God delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and him who has no helper. You catch that? God delivers. He is delighted to deliver those who have no other hope. Those who have come to the end of themselves. Those who are utterly helpless. When you find yourself in that situation, the pressure of the weight of that situation should drive you to the Savior. Come in your helplessness, in your weakness. Why? Because your weakness and your helplessness will draw you to experience the greatness of God. His love, His care, His mercy, His power, His grace. Are you letting the impossible situation you're in draw you away from God? Cause you to question His care? Or are you letting it, like this woman, draw you in to the only one who could truly help you? She felt helpless. We do too. And we truly are. The question is not, are you helpless? The question is, what are you doing in your helplessness? Who are you running to? What are you trusting in? Where are you going when you're helpless? You want to change. There's one person who could help you change. You want to be cleansed from your uncleanness. There's one person who could cleanse you. You want to fix that problem on the inside. There is a Savior. He's the only one who could rescue. So she comes in her helplessness to the Lord Let's see what else she does. Let's just observe a little bit of what she's like. Look at verse 25. It says that she had, that the daughter had an unclean spirit and the woman had heard of Jesus. This probably took place in Mark 3. We see that Jesus' popularity was such that surrounding cities were hearing about Jesus, even specifically Madison's Tyre. She had heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. You see that? She fell down at his feet. She humbled herself. She recognized him, his lordship, his power, and she went down before him recognizing who he was. Verse 26 describes who she was, but then look, it says, and she begged him. Matthew again makes it more clear that she was crying out repeatedly. She was not giving up. She was persistent. That she was coming again and again even to the point where Mark leaves this out but Matthew includes it that the disciples got so annoyed by this woman they go to Jesus and say, come on Jesus, can we do something about this woman? Can we send her away? Why don't we just send her away? She's, she's so 
persistent. She won't stop. And Jesus doesn't send her away. What does that say? That she is not giving up. Here's our, here's our second principle of how we approach God, how we approach Jesus for help and for healing. Here it is. Uh, and I struggled with how to put this. This is where I landed. We come defying other options. We, we come understanding that there is help nowhere else. We come with a singular aim, with a singular focus, understanding that Jesus and Jesus alone can fix me. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who could solve the problems I'm bringing. She's laying herself down like a puddle at his feet. She's begging him. She's not a woman, judging by the text here, that sees Jesus as one of many options. What would she have done if she saw Jesus as one of many options? She would have come. She would have asked for some time with Jesus. And Jesus, or with the apostles, and the apostles would have what? They would have sent her away. And she would have gone on to the next option if she saw Jesus as one of many options. But she didn't. She understood that there was one option. That there was only one option, only one way, only one hope. That she had a singular hope that created in her a kind of desperation to get to Jesus. She was begging. She was persistent. All-out desperation. Uh, Sometimes we use the phrase, putting all your eggs in one basket. That's what she's doing. What kind of desperation does she feel? Imagine you're skydiving and you pull the first ripcord and nothing happens. That's the kind of desperation. You start grabbing for that second emergency ripcord. You start looking for something that can, that can save you. you. You know that there's no other option. It's the sensation of drowning. If you've been underwater to the point where you're starting to feel the pressure that you need to breathe and you start flailing and kicking and doing all that you can just to get the breath, there are no other options. You get to the surface or you die. That's the feeling this woman has. She knows that if I don't get to Christ, if I don't get to the Savior, if I don't get to the Son of David, my daughter may never be cured. My daughter may always have this demon, and who knows what the demon might do. It might kill her. She doesn't say, I'm going to try a little more religion. I'm going to try to wash my hands better. If I can have a certain technique, I'm going to try some more rules being added to my life. Maybe that'll work. Tips and tricks. I'm going to change my circumstances. I'm going to start working on my behavior. I'm going to change the way I think. Uh, we, in America, we, we have the, the can-do attitude, don't we? I mean, we are literally, if we are an American, you're literally the, the great-great-great-grandchildren. You know, we are the great-great-great-grandchildren of the people who left, who went on the great adventure west to explore the new frontier like those were our grandparents it's literally in our dna to feel self-reliant and to feel that we can do things on our own isn't it and here is a woman who has come to the other end of herself and says i cannot do it i have no hope and there are many of us who are still trying to live the life of self-reliance we can overcome our problems on our own We can overcome our problems without help. My problems are not so big that I need to look so undignified. The Pharisees would never have acted this way. 
They wouldn't have begged. They didn't need Jesus that much. They were relatively good people. And I wonder if there's anyone here that's more like that. Too proud to beg. Too proud to become desperate. Too self-reliant to give up on other options. You still think maybe you've got some tools in the toolbox that maybe you can use to overcome your problems. Yet this woman shows us that she has given up other options entirely. She is coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus with all her eggs in this basket. She's banking everything on Jesus. Have you done that yet? You see, we try to change ourselves. We try to fix the uncleannesses in our own hearts and in our families. We try to deal with those issues. And yet sometimes it's like Jesus is just one of the many options. I could try this, and I could try this, and I could try this, and if none of those things work, I'll try Jesus. But have you gotten to the point where you realize that the living God is your only hope? That you will not change unless Jesus changes you. That you will not be cleansed unless Jesus cleanses you. That the things that you want to see done, the spiritual realities you need to see taking place in your life and in the lives of your children and the lives of people around you, the grace that you want to see given, you, you can't manufacture that. You can't create that. You can't manipulate God. It is God and God alone. You are helpless and therefore you come with no other options except to look to Christ. Banish that can-do attitude and become like a child and say, my hope is in you and you alone, Christ. We see another way that this woman comes. She's begging him, in verse 26, to cast the demon out. And then we get this fascinating interchange in verse 27 that's wildly misunderstood. Verse 27, it says, Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What a, what a response. Would you like that response? You come to Jesus in desperation and helplessness, and Jesus says, let the, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take what's theirs and throw it to the dogs. The, the dogs? Me? Did Jesus sin? No. Get that in your mind. There's, there's lines of thinking even popular this week, I saw all kinds of stuff online of, for whatever reason, this was online this week, that people were making the claim that in Mark 7, 24 to 30, the text we're studying this morning, that Jesus committed racism. That Jesus was guilty of a racial slur, calling this woman a dog. This is terrible. Terrible exegesis horrifying hermeneutics. This is wretched theology. If Jesus sinned, if he harbored in his mind for a single nanosecond a sinful thought about this woman, we are not Christians. We are not saved. We are not redeemed. We are condemned. Because Jesus is a sinful Savior and his sacrifice is blemished and he cannot atone for the sins of man. And he cannot give his righteousness to us. If Jesus for a split second committed a sin, 
we are still in our sins and cannot be reconciled to God. For to, to, to suggest that the sinless Savior in this moment committed a sin is to blaspheme God. It is to trample on His sacrifice. It is to undo the atonement. It is a travesty we reject outright. He did not sin at all. Keep that in mind. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God, unblemished and pure. What is going on then in this text? Let me explain this to you. Uh, follow along with me. He, he says, verse 27, to this woman, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What does he mean? Let's back up. Let's get a picture of this in the grand story of redemption. When God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he made him a promise. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. But do you remember why God said he would bless Abraham and the nation? So that you would be a blessing to all nations. That God chose Abraham, and Abraham would then become Israel and his offspring. And God's choice of Israel was not just so that Yahweh would be the tribal God of one little nation, but that the true God over all the world, over all the nations, would use Israel to bless all nations. That the God is, he, he, there's one God, and so there's one hope, and there's one gospel. But God was going to use Israel to bless all the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6. God says to Israel, I will make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God's plan was to bless Israel, and in blessing Israel, they would overflow in blessings to the nations. You follow? So God's plan was to bless them first and nations second. That is the redemptive plan of God. That's why in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus is sending out the apostles on their first kind of missionary preaching tour, he says to them, listen to this, he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When Jesus came, he came to Israel. He came for God's covenant people, Israel. He was the son of David for Israel to offer himself as their king. Why? So that in the, if they received him, they would receive the blessings and the blessings would spill out to all nations. Of course, Israel rejected him. As we've been reading in the Gospel of Mark that the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, were rejecting their own Messiah and King. This is what Paul picks up in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, but listen to what he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's not saying the Jews were more important. He's saying that God's intention was for the gospel to be believed by everyone, but first it would go to the Jews and through the Jews to the world. And so Jesus is on a mission. He has come to his people Israel in fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament to offer himself as their king. Israel is the children. Jesus is coming to bring the food of the gospel, the food of the truth to the children. And the Gentiles will eat of the gospel feast later on. That's the redemptive theme. And so when Jesus says, let the children be fed first, he's saying, let the 
Israelites, let the Jews receive the gospel first. This is why I've come. I have an obligation to the Jews in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. I'm going to the people of the Old Covenant. I'm going to offer myself to them to be their king. The dogs will eat later, but Jews, the, the, the nations will eat later. The Israel will be receiving it first. Could you imagine if uh, as you were a kid and you're sitting around the dinner table and dad or mom comes in with this great big feast, this banquet, and you're sitting there and your mouth starts to water. You're thinking, oh, this is going to be good. I'm really excited. I'm hungry. And I'm sitting at the table and the, the food goes down. And then the puppy comes up and starts looking at the dad with those puppy dog eyes. Some of you guys just right away start feeding the dog, don't you? You just, you just can't resist that puppy. You start throwing little things. Oops, dropped another scrap. You can't say no. Can imagine if you took all of it and you said, oh, the puppies are so cute. The dog just looks so hungry. And you, your dad takes that big turkey or that big whatever, fill it in, your favorite food, Thanksgiving meal, and he just puts it on the ground. And the dog swarms in, and the dogs start eating it and chewing it, and the kids are looking at each other going, what in the world? We're the children. Those are the dogs. See, see, it wouldn't make sense. The dogs can be fed, but the children were first. Now, that's what Jesus is kind of getting at with the analogy, is that the, the dogs will be fed, but the, the children are first. He has come to the covenant people of God, the Israel the, the, the people that God has made these promises with, he's going to come to them. He's going to offer himself to them as their king. By the way, the word for dogs here, there's different kinds of words for dog. In Matthew chapter 7, when he says, don't throw what is holy to the dogs, it's a different Greek word. It's actually referring to a more wild dog that would eat the carcasses on the side of the road, the kind of big, feral, dangerous dogs. Uh, these dogs, the, the, is a this word here is referring to a smaller dog that might have been around the table. Sometimes in first century they would take them in as pets, but they were kind of harmless. And it was normal to let these dogs kind of hang around and they would eat whatever was left over after the family ate. And so it's not as pejorative as maybe it first comes off. He's using an analogy. Whatever you think about how harsh that word is, the woman takes zero offense you see this zero offense listen to her response to jesus's statement she says verse 28 but she answered him yes lord those two words just ought to rock your world a little bit she didn't say how dare you compare me to a dog I'm a woman. She said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. She didn't disagree. She, she agreed. Yes, I know. That's who I am. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She doesn't deny that she's a dog. She doesn't deny that she doesn't deserve the place at the table. And it's here that we find our third principle for approaching God. You want to come to God with requests. You want Him to heal your heart. You want 
Him to respond to your prayers. Follow the example of this girl. And here's our third principle. You come in total humility. You come with abject humility. Totally aware that you deserve nothing. We never should approach the Holy God like we deserve something from Him. She says, yes, Lord. I know I'm not a child. It's as if she's saying, I know I don't deserve the feast. I know I don't deserve a spot at the table. I know that's for the children. I know I'm a dog. But can I have a crumb? Can I get a scrap? Why? Listen, in her humility, and because of her humility, she knows that if she gets anything from God, it's pure, unmerited mercy. To come to a holy God, you do not come demanding, ordering Him to do your bidding. He is no genie. He is under no obligation to demonstrate mercy. If He's under obligation at all, it is to demonstrate justice. And if He demonstrates justice, we will face condemnation. He is free to bestow mercy on whom He will bestow mercy and to be gracious on whom He will be gracious. None of that is earned. We come with no merit and we come as beggars and we say, if we get a crumb, if you give me a scrap, I will rejoice. That's all I need. I don't deserve the banquet. I don't deserve a seat at the table. I am not a child. I am banking everything on your free generosity and your overflowing mercy. It's all grace. It's all mercy. And the beautiful reality of the gospel is that when you come like this woman in your helplessness with no other options, banking everything on Him, He gives you more than a crumb, doesn't He? That you have the guarantee and the promise of dining at the marriage supper of the Lamb, feasting to your heart's delight. He will give you all that you've asked for and more in the life to come. In this life, though we, we may be beggars and we may have very little, He will allow us to feast in His house one day. We're just begging. We're just humble sinners. And so we come with helpless desperation, turning aside from all of their options and embracing God pleading for mercy, for mercy. Let me ask you, have you come to God this way? Many of us all our lives are, have been coming to God like the Pharisee, trying to do a little more, trying to try a little harder, trying to pull ourselves up, trying to try in this new technique, 
trying this new way, this new kind of prayer, this new kind of Bible reading plan, all these new things we're trying to do because we think if we do that, then we will have our problems fixed. Our hearts will be changed. And nothing can change your heart except God. Nothing can cleanse you except Him. And this woman comes exhibiting these characteristics. And Jesus in Matthew is very clear. He commends her for her great faith. Verse 29, Jesus here says, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. He responds to her. He grants her the request. Have you come to God this way? Banking your entire life on Him. Coming in with humility, begging for mercy, understanding you're helpless and desperate. Total humility. Great men and women of God have never objected to using the most debasing analogies to describe who they are. David called himself a dog in Psalm 22. William Carey, great missionary, on his tombstone has this written, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Lemuel Haynes, his epitaph reads, Here lies the dust of a poor, hell-deserving sinner who ventured into eternity trusting wholly on the merits of Christ for salvation. How do you approach God? How do you approach God for the requests that you have, for the needs that you feel? Do you come as if you deserve anything? Or like this woman, helpless, desperate, hoping only in Him, with total humility, banking entirely on His mercy, Friends, if you come this way to Jesus, He will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. So if you have never come to Christ, come in your humility and receive the grace and mercy He has for you through His death, burial, and resurrection. And as you approach God this week, church, in your prayers, bringing to Him your needs and your requests, come like this. Don't be so dignified that you can't come to God like this. Let's pray. So, Father, we recognize that we are dogs. We are worms. We have no merit. 